Hello and welcome to another episode of Material Matters with Grant Gibson. That's me. I've been doing this for three years now, but for listeners who might be new to the show, the idea is that I speak to a designer, maker, artist or architect about a material or technique with which they're intrinsically linked and discover how it changed their lives and careers. Before we meet today's guest, I would just like to point out that this episode has been kindly sponsored by Mac Contemporary Ceramics the leading specialist auction house and art consultancy dedicated to studio ceramics. Presenting the very best examples by the leading ceramic artists of the 20th and 21st century, the Mac auctions have become a highlight event in any collector's diary. It has a regular auction schedule with viewing exhibitions in central London and bidding online giving access to a global audience. With prices ranging from £200 to £200,000, there is something for collectors of all levels. The next Mac auction, entitled East Miss West, selection from the Dr. John P. Driscoll collection, is a second selection from this exceptional world-renowned collection. The auction will take place on the 10th of March 2022 and will go on view on Friday the 18th of February at maclondon.com. Mac is spelt M-A-A-K london.com. More details can be found on the Mac website. So it gives me a vast amount of pleasure to welcome today's guest, the delightful Alison Britton. Alison is a ceramicist, writer and educator who emerged as part of a revolutionary group of artists from the Royal College of Art in the 1970s who were determined to provide an alternative to the then-dominant school of ceramics led by Bernard Leach. Instead, their work was angular, abstract, urban, a little bit feisty and, hey, I'm going to say it, postmodern, provoking one critic to write in Crafts magazine that these were pieces that rejoiced in a hideousness that does not even have the excuse of eloquence. Her pots, which famously test the outer limits of function, have evolved over the years and are generally slab-built, with abstract surface finishes and an architectural quality. Meanwhile, her prose have long been a vital part of her practice, and a collection of her writing, entitled Seeing Things, was published in 2015. In 2016, she had a major retrospective of her work at the V&A in London, while she received an OBE for her services to art in 1990. Alison, thank you very, very much for doing this. Thank you for inviting me. And can I just chip in? There's now a second edition of Seeing Things coming out this year. Okay, there you go. I was going to mention that at the back end of the interview, but you've got it in early. Okay, so it's got a whole new decade. (laughs) Okay, so what, that's the noughties. Comes up to 2020. 2020, very good. What can people expect in that, since we're talking about it now? Oh, well, hopefully more and better. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Well, it's now my second or third question, but generally it's my first question and it's kind of inevitable, I'm afraid. But um, how have you coped with the last two years? How has the pandemic been for you? Has it affected your work? Has it affected your life? Well, on some level, because I live alone in this house and I do writing stuff at home and I have a studio, a 10 minute drive away and I work there alone, I could just carry on really with all kinds of work. I had two exhibitions in the first year of lockdown, one in Geneva and one in London at Corby Mora. I have stopped teaching. I stopped that when I turned 70. I've definitely slowed the pace a bit. For that first year of lockdown, to have two shows at once, was it was a lot of work and it was really enjoyable. Were they in a response to lockdown or were they already slated to happen? They were already going to happen. Right, Yeah. right, right. What we try and do in these podcasts, Alison, is try and place where you are for listeners. Hmm. I'm looking across you over a Zoom line at the moment and we're cheating a little bit because you're in your home rather than your studio because we thought Mm. your studio was going to be a little too echoey. Mm. But can you maybe describe, well, maybe describe your backdrop for us, but also your studio. I'm quite intrigued to know how you work. Let's start with the studio. It's in a decoshered butcher shop in Stamford Hill. 
So I think it was built in the earlier part of the 20th century, like 1920 or something, I don't know. And um, it had been a butcher shop until we got it. I bought it with an Australian friend called Prue Venables, who lived in the flat upstairs and worked downstairs. And then she ultimately went back to Australia, where she still lives and works. And I carried on. And I did, you know, I let people come and work there in the other room, you know, for periods of time. But basically, I got used to having it to myself, really. And there's a garage at the back that Brian Ilsley works in, who paints and makes jewellery and woodwork and things. But I didn't find it too big to have two rooms suddenly, because I, I lay out a lot of, you know, sheets of clay to dry enough to work with and so on. So I have filled that double space quite easily, really. So when it came to lockdown, you weren't supposed to, you know, meet anybody apart from a tiny pod. If you lived alone, you were allowed to be in a pod. And I had to choose between both my daughters and I chose the one that was slightly nearer. (laughs) Oh, did that cause angst in the family, I wonder? Well, no. I mean, because ultimately I could meet the other one out of doors. She lives virtually in Victoria Park, so I could go for walks outside with her and her family. Um, but I went indoors and ate dinners with my older daughter, Laurie. <laughs> you better cook. <laughs> well, she's married to an Italian, which, uh. you know, brings a little something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they are very keen on cooking. So I, it didn't change for me, really. I did a massive amount of work because I worked alone. I do have some help with glazing. Sam Bakewell comes to help me glaze because I have a rather right. vigorous way of... Who's a renowned ceramicist in his own right nowadays. He is. He is, yes. Mm. Yeah. And he started coming, I think, soon after he was a student, actually. Right. So it's a sort of duet we do with holding and sloshing clays out of jugs into buckets. And I'm quite intrigued by, well, we're we're talking to you from your home, where you have a selection of, well, I guess your own work sat in shelves behind It is, mostly, mostly, not entirely, yeah. Mostly my own work, yeah. Mm. How do you decide what pots you're going to keep? Oh, it can be random. It's what's left sometimes. And then sometimes I deliberately keep them no I've never deliberately kept a new one I like them to go out and be in shows and be seen by the people but sometimes when things come back from a show I might think oh I'll just hold on to that or nobody's asked Mm. for it or nobody wants to put it in another show or whatever so it's a mixture of things that linger and things that I think I think I'll hold on to that Mm. so they're not deliberately kept from various parts of your working life there was a very very wonderful man who put plants in offices called Ed Wolf who did set up with several artists a system where he paid you a monthly check and then he had three pieces a year, which was very supportive when I was much younger and and, um, not earning all that much. So there came a point when he wanted to part with his collection and it all went off to another collector. But in the process of moving it, he asked me if I'd like to choose, I think it was five pieces to have back. So four of those five are, are now behind me on the wall. Right. Okay. And... One of them is soon going off to be in a, in a museum collection. But yeah, it was such a generous thing to do because I've never on purpose kept things. I always needed the money if somebody might buy it, you know. <laughs> so it is, it is very pleasing to see a spectrum of, of what I did at different times. And then I have times of thinking I like the old ones better than what I'm doing now and <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. When did you realise you were going to be a potter? I read you were nine years old when you first picked up a piece of clay. Yes, Yeah. My father worked at the Institute of Education and there was a potter there teaching art teachers. And he sent lumps of clay home in my father's briefcase for both of his children to, you know, my half a sister to, to play with. And um, funny ideas like, do you know what Taylor's chalk is? It comes in little sort of tablets and it is actually dry clay. Right. 
Is that the stuff they use to mark a suit? They make a sharp line. They might draw on something. Yes. So he suggested we carved it and then he would fire it. So we carved little medallions and things. So it was in my mind from quite early on. And we had a pottery teacher at school from when I was about 10, maybe nine, 10 in the junior school. And then I sort of worked with the pottery teacher after she left because she started, she left to, uh, to get married and also to put up murals in airports and things. So I've always known that there was a clay world, you know, where it wasn't a strange thing to me at all. Yeah, yeah. But it wasn't an immediate epiphany. You didn't pick it up at nine years old and think, this is me for the rest of my life. Well, I did like it. And I think when I went off to Leeds to do a foundation course, I thought I ought to keep an open mind. And I did much more painting there than I'd done before. And I faintly wondered about doing painting. And then I thought, but actually, I want the stuff. You know, I want the stuff in my hands. I want something that you can both paint and manipulate. Mm. Because your parents, they were both teachers. They met at Harrow Weald Grammar School, I think. And your mum was an art teacher. My mum was an art teacher. Mm, it was a father of an English teacher. And you were the younger of two sisters. That's right. So what was the Britain household like? Were you always making things? I mean, obviously, your father bought back this clay. So presumably, there must have been some craft going on. Yes. I mean, I think when we were very small, my, my mother had been a sort of handicraft teacher as well as an art teacher. So she was really good at buying stuff from dryads and places, you know, embroidery threads and stuff to sew and we made felt toys and it wasn't very clayish in my small childhood because clay i mean it's messy isn't it clay was your mother inclined to tidy up yes my mother (laughs) thought so yeah i've never thought of it as messy but then i have a whole place to make a mess in by now so it's fine no she preferred plasticine because it doesn't leave a residue you know yes well funnily enough and this is a plug you plugged the book i'm going to plug my next podcast (laughs) i'm talking to peter lord who co-founded ardman about plasticine in the next episode Oh, wonderful. So there you go. Yeah. Now, plasticine is clay and oil, isn't it? I believe so. I believe yeah. so, but I guess he's yeah. going to tell me. Yes. Well, <laughs> I'll listen to the podcast and learn. Oh, good. Good. I mean, one of the interesting stories I remember you telling was that your father, who became this incredibly influential educator, worked on language development in infancy, and he published a book entitled Language and Learning in 1970 that analysed you and your sister's conversations as mm. children. I mean, that must have been a little disconcerting, I'm guessing. Well, also, this is before tape recorders, so he was writing it all down. You know, oh, it was wow. all handwritten. Mm. And we thought he was working, you know, scribbling away. He was writing down what we said. <laughs> Actually, he was listening intently to what you were saying. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it didn't happen that often, you know, but a few times yeah. for the odd quotation. By 1970, you were, I mean, how old were you in 1970? You were very aware of, of this book, presumably. Well, he'd been doing the kind of writing it down since we were, I think, when I was four or five, he was. Mm. Yeah, I was born in 48. So by the time the book came out, I was big. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But how did that feel? Was that fine or was it a um, sensation? It was fine for me and not fine for my sister. Oh, why was that? I think he he went on talking about her for longer to, into her teenage years and stuff. And she she didn't like that being in print. I think she felt he hadn't asked for her consent. Hmm, interesting. But your father, he was quite practical too. He made you a doll's house with electricity in every room, yes, right? Yes, which my grandchildren play with now. Unfortunately, oh, wow. the, the, electricity, the electricity was run little bulbs in the... Uh, it had batteries in the roof, which somehow can't be replicated. They don't make batteries like that anymore. So it doesn't light up anymore, but it has hmm. the other things. Further down the line, what did they make of your desire to be a, to be a potter? They were fine with it. I think they were worried that I wouldn't make a living at it, which was indeed true. But I always taught as well, you know. Yeah. But I mean, while I'm at it, do you think of yourself, I've just used the word potter, do you think of yourself as a potter? I or do. do. you describe yourself as an artist? Does potter. it matter to you? No, potter. Potter. It might, yes, potter. Why? Does the label matter? If you like words and what they communicate, then you want to be a bit specific, I think. Mm. I mean, artists, mm. it covers a huge 
huge territory, doesn't it? Mm. Including, you know, pop songs and everything. I like down-to-earth words, you know, and Potter is one of those. But I know from experience, because mm. we've talked in the past, mm. you don't like the word vessel. You don't make vessels. No. Why is that? I think the word pot is better. Vessel is trying to, <laughs> is trying to kind of artify it, I think. Make it more precious. Yes. But I'm quite intrigued by that, Alison. Your work is in the collector's market. I mean, it is quite precious what you make. Yes. So doesn't the word vessel preciousify it further and, and therefore give it more value as we're calling yourself an artist? I think it's precious in that negative way of overprecious, really, of trying to make a special case for something when the fact that that material extends all the way from drain pipes to altar pieces is its wonder, really. And I don't want only to put myself in the arty corner. Fair enough. Fair enough. (laughs) (laughs) And writing. Should we talk Mm. about the writing, Mm -hmm. which has always been an important part of your practice? We've talked about the fact you have this new book or a new version of the book, Seeing Things, being published. When is it being published again? Any minute now? I've done the last correction, so I'm crossing my fingers and hoping it's within a a month or so. Very good. Um, So what's the relationship for you between pots and prose? Does one feed into the other? I definitely think they communicate with each other. I don't think it's a very specific kind of feeding. I think I've just always thought of language as another of my materials, really. I mean, obviously, being brought up by someone who taught English teachers, it was all very fostered, you know, encouraged to write, encouraged to read lots of books, paper brought home. When he was a publisher, he would bring back proofs that we could draw and things when there was a shortage of paper after the war. I think it's good to have more than one arrow in your quiver. I've never said that before. It's a new metaphor. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm glad we're drawing one more new metaphors out of you, Alison. It's made me very happy. (laughs) What's intriguing about about seeing things, the book, is when you write, it's generally because you're commissioned. Oh, always. Well, yes. Either for a catalogue or for a magazine. It's not a hobby in that sense. Something you do speculatively for enjoyment. Um, Does your work in clay have that same sense of purpose, I wonder? I think deadlines are quite good for me. So I think when there's a deadline, I sort of, go up a gear. When there aren't any deadlines, I probably don't write an awful lot without a context for it. I mean, I think the very nice thing and what the book is full of is is me being in, invited to write for magazines and so on, where you're sent off specifically to go to someone else's studio, which you wouldn't necessarily find yourself in otherwise. That was a fantastic experience. And when there were many magazines about craft work in the field, there was a lot of work. And of course, it's really dwindled since then. Yeah, welcome to my world, Alice. Yeah, yes, yes. <laughs> yes. So, so I'm not being asked to write things very much, but sometimes for catalogue essays, really, that's probably mm. all that happens now. But you wouldn't say, I mean, obviously, Edmund Duval, he wrote a book about Bernard Leash and he wrote uh, How with the Amber Eyes. And he was writing kind of books, I guess, speculatively, not knowing if there'd be an audience. Mm. You don't write in that same way. You need I don't, no, a commission no. and a deadline. Yes, and I want to be pushed towards something that I might not choose myself, in a way. Mm. It's sort of an eye-opening thing. But with your ceramics, you don't have anybody else pushing you? No, I don't. I just have galleries saying September the 25th or something. You know? <laughs> That's enough of a push. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, can we talk about your clay education? You did a foundation at Leeds College of Art in 1966, mm. before going on to the Central School of Art, where you're taught by Gordon Baldwin. And then you finished up at the Royal College of Art, where one of your tutors was Hans Koper, whose work is now obviously fetching a fortune in auctions. What was it like being taught by Hans Koper? It was extremely special. Gordon Baldwin and Hans Koper are very different. Gordon would talk, talk, talk. Mm. And Hans Koper 
said very little, but what he said, he really tried very hard to remember. And I don't quite remember how it worked. The RCA was quite loose. It was David Queensby's department at the time, and it wasn't very structured. So I think the students asked for tutorials. They, they were appointed to a tutor, but you could ask for a tutorial with any of the teachers. And I think Hans only came in one day a week by the time I was there. So you, you sometimes had to wait a while before you could get a slot with him and so on. I think he was just very skilled at never imposing himself and his own ideas, but sort of drawing out what you might go on for. And I was very lost in the first year at the RCA. Interesting. Why was that? I didn't really want to go on with what I'd been at the central school, which was very highly decorative and fussy in a way. I wanted to have a, a new beginning, really. And so that took a while. And I think David Queensbury thought I might be somebody, a pattern designer for the industry and something, and he encouraged me in various sort of two-dimensional kind of directions. I did an etching course as well there and so on. But I realised that I actually, I really did want the combination of the form and the surface being decorated. That's interesting. I was going to ask you about how you felt your work developed through your education. I mean, can, can we talk about the pieces that you were making, say, at your foundation at Leeds, and then the pieces that you were creating when you, by the time you left the Royal College? Yes. I almost made nothing at Leeds, in that we were doing so many other things. But I have in my studio, there's a kind of planches, and there's a vast sort of collage painting I did there, or it's a folded own half, I think, depicting my very familiar journey from home. I sort of made symbols for almost every station it stopped at between Hatch End and Euston. Because Euston was where you could go to the cinema or you could go and meet somebody in the student union or whatever, you know. All social life was beyond Hatch End, really. <laughs> <laughs> It was very experimental in Leeds. And I, I think I made two clay things while I was there in Leeds. And it wasn't very obvious that clay was my thing. But then perhaps in the reflection before I had to know where to apply, I thought, actually, I do want to go further with this. You only made two clay objects at Leeds. Oh, that I can recall, yes, because it was only yeah. a little part of the course. I probably did it for six weeks or something. Yeah, yeah. So was there a moment that you can recall where you decided, okay, so I am going to take this forward. This is the material for me. I think I was helped by the potter at the Institute who sent the bits of chalk home. Yeah. Bill Newland said, would you like me to look through your portfolio? And he suggested ways of putting it together for an application to ceramics course. And he had taught at Central for a long time, so he was recommending it. Uh, so this is Bill Newland, who you talk yeah. about in other instances yes. being a huge influence. He used to do Prancing yeah. Bulls, yes. uh, very yes. inspired by Picasso. New Zealand-born, yes. but British yes. potter. Yes, he was from a farming family in New Zealand. And he, I think he was in the Air Force. Wherever you ended up at the end of the war, you were allowed to get an education. So he chose to go to art school in London. So he taught you, but also it was his work influential on Well, he you? didn't really... Because I have seen you do films for the v about his work. He only taught me for a weekend, I think. Right. I mean, for a week, maybe. But he, he would keep an eye on me, you know, he would kind of check in. I think I did think his work was exciting. And, I, and we would go to the coffee bars that had their tiles in them and everything, you know, in Soho. And often it was copper green on a tin glaze and so on, mm. painting. I don't think I wanted to make work like him at any point, but I really fed off his energy and enthusiasm, really. Mm. So that's Leeds. And so when you left the Royal College, mm. what kind of pieces were you making then? Because I think you, you, you were doing a lot of tile type work. I did a massive amount of tiles, yeah. 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 I, I showed almost all painted tiles. Which seems quite surprising because I your know. work is so architectural now. Mm. And then a few little objects, one of which is sort of architectural, but it was arrived at by experimenting with slip casting, which I didn't want to go on with after that. But I, I made some red slip red clay slip, which um, 
takes a bit of chemistry that I now forget because it doesn't make it as easily as um, as white clay does. And it was sort of like, it was, it was a sort of bit of moulding in a way, a bit of architrave and a cave-like. I mean, the great thing about the RCA was at that point where it was in Kensington, it was like a 12-minute walk to the V&A just mm. down the road. So we were in there massive amount. I knew that collection so well. And one of the things that, that I was very thrilled by in the first flush of um, understanding it were the European stoves, the German and Dutch ceramic tiled stoves, because of their relief. The more texture you had, the more heat it would give out. And there's one wonderful green stove that you can see that they're, they're almost like little drain pipes cut in half with a facing on them so that there's a whole reflective surface that's exposing the heat. Mm. So on your tiles, what were you drawing or painting? Well, I think they inspired me. Mm. They're nothing, actually. They were just red clay, I think, most of them. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, or just a glaze. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they weren't painted. When you are at the Royal College, there was this group mm. that was seen as quite revolutionary. Yourself, Carol McNichol, Jacqueline Poncelet, Elizabeth Fritch. Did you feel like a gang? Were you consciously kicking against what had gone before? The, I guess the kind of Lycian school. Uh, it's all semi-conscious, I'd say. Semi-conscious. <laughs> yes. I think we knew we wanted to do something different from that. We were, Those were very different years too. Uh, Liz Fritch was almost, she'd almost left by the time I arrived, but she right. stayed on for an extra, she stayed on a bit longer after she'd graduated. Okay. And then Jill Crowley was part of it and she was a year above me and Carol. Jill Crowley and Jackie Poncelet were the year above and Carol Medical and I were in the same year. So we sort of overlapped, but weren't all in the same cohort. Were you sharing ideas? Oh, yes. Yes, yes. You get packaged together. Well, it was also a very sociable place. Yeah. I certainly worked behind the bar. I don't know if any of the others did. So you'd meet everybody. And it was a much smaller institution. Yeah. And it was all in one building. So everybody met everybody, really. Hans Koper, I think Eduardo Palazzi was yeah. also teaching you. Were they yeah. encouraging this kind of ripping up what had gone before attitude that you yes. adopted as yeah. a group? yeah. I don't think we knew you were, we were a group at that point. Mm. I think that comes later. I mean, your work, I think, the first time by Martina Margetz has been described as postmodern. But it strikes me there's something almost kind of proto-punky about it as well. Were you angry? Was this an angry rebellion? Or was no, it a kind of no, more very polite no. thing? It wasn't, but either it was neither polite nor angry. It was happy, exuberant. <laughs> good, good. Your pot's have been described by uh, Alan Graves, who's the head of ceramics at the V&A, as being marked by ambiguity and contradiction. Is that something you agree with, I wonder? Yeah, I think certainly the ambiguity. Having both of them together is a bit of a mouthful, isn't it? I've done it for so long now, I don't know that I have any particular expectation of the audience, but certainly in the early days, I wanted a little bit of a jolt to, to be experienced, I think. You know, why she done that sort of feeling? Mm. Mm. But that's so long ago. I mean, that's water under the bridge now. Well, it is. But unfortunately, with this podcast, we have to talk about this. Yeah, yes, yes. It's, no, that's, it's that's the nature fine. Of the beast. No, 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 no. no I'm, I'm very happy. I mean, history is, is fascinating, even if it's your own, even if it's, you know, not that long. <laughs> On that kind of theme, I, I'm interested in how you deal with criticism. I, mean, I read out, it was Christopher Reed who wrote that piece in Crafts where, mm. you know, he talks about how much of the work that is fashionable these days is singularly graceless, is how he described it. Did that bother you at the time? Did you think you were doing a good job? What was your response to that? Well, graceless sounds like a negative word, but on the other hand, graceful did not interest me. So it wasn't terrible, you know, to hear that. I mean, it was a bit of a jolt, but, you know, 
it sort of met with what I had in mind. So that was good, really. Which was what? Well, just uh, to shake things up a bit. Yeah. But this notion of creating pots that are functional, but also commented on function. I mean, when did that begin to develop in your thinking? I think those things get put down through words rather than just being and doing. I think it's when you come to try and describe what it was, what happened, that's when any kind of language gets put around it, really. And that's one of the thrills of doing both, actually. Was that you creating the language around your own work or is that people creating language around the work for you? I generally was only creating language around other people's work because I never wrote about my own. Yeah. But sometimes, you know, it, it was a fellow feeling, say I was writing an exhibition leaflet for Jill Crowley or something, that were, you know, response to her work that also sort of reflected back on how I thought, I suppose. So you, you have this kind of happy revolution and then you become the new establishment, really. Did you feel comfortable with that? Only for some, only for some. I mean, nothing actually... Nothing actually penetrates the previous. The leech thing is still so strong, isn't it? No arrows stick to it. Well, I'm not saying that it's dead in the water because there are still lots of people making the kind of leechian pots and they're still popular. Yes. And as I now have this other role, being the chair of trustees at the Craft Study Centre, where we have probably one leech. of the biggest collections of Bernard yeah, Leach. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and we have his study collection, which is absolutely gripping, the things he has in his study collection. Yeah. So again, you see, I have a... I think we used him as a sort of punch bag and I now see the pointlessness of that. You know, I, I think once I decided that it was obvious where he belonged and I and not everyone agrees with me, but I see him as a modernist, as was Coper and Ree, mm. whereas other people want to go on about ruralism and stuff. But actually, I think that's a kind, what he did was a kind of modernism. I don't know if he would ever have said that of it, but it seems, I mean, Glenn Adamson disagrees with me, but I, I think it's modernism too. Can we explore that a little bit? Yeah. Because you've said this to me before, and I'm not wholly convinced, but in what basis is he a modernist? Well, I, in that he's, whether it's naively or not, He's starting again. He's he's coming back. I mean, I think he knew almost nothing about what ceramics was in Britain when he got back from the Far East. Like he didn't know about the Martin brothers or anything. But he, he starts in a sort of revolutionary mood, doesn't he? And, mm. and has mm. um, Japanese people coming over to work with him and so on. I think it is. It's a little revolution, which modernism is. It's sort of it's saying we're not having any more of that. We're going to do this. And I think it's a, it's a, a different strand than what Coper and Ree were doing. But they were both sort of post-turmoil, weren't they? They were a slightly different period, but it's a moment where there's a need for something new to begin. Mm. Mm. So do you now regret the kind of sense of this desire to rip up the Lysian playbook as it was? Well, I get a chance to express my changed view. I was asked to curate at the Craft Study Centre, choosing things from three different public collections. Yeah, and it was called Three by One. Yeah, the Crafts Council, Crafts Study Centre and the Arts Council. Yes, yeah. yeah. I got really much more into the collections at the Crafts Study Centre. I mean, all of them, actually. But there were just some beautiful things, particularly in Leach's study collection, which changed my mind. And I had a beautiful small jug of Leach's in, in my selection. I mean, did you feel people a generation after you rebelling against what you did? I haven't seen it in writing, I don't think. But I'm, I'm sure they are. I think we've just become more plural generally in the way that we perceive most things probably. Yes, yeah, so it's so multi-stranded. So it's so multi-stranded you, you couldn't really tell. Yeah, yeah. So that, that notion of one generation kicking against another doesn't exist in quite the same way, I suspect. Yes, and I, and I also think there's so many fewer places teaching ceramics. Well, that's true. There isn't that sort of body, you know, of, of people who could be 
reacting in in parallel ways. Really, yeah, yeah. It's, it's got more, much more scattered. There's so much going on in sort of ev- evening class level. It's very, very popular, isn't it? Throwing in particular, I think. Yeah, no, absolutely. Further mm. education, it's exploded. Mm. Higher education mm. is having a you know difficult time over the past mm. well mm. couple of decades, I guess. Concentrating back on you, yeah. You've talked about Leach being rural. And the city is very important to what you do, isn't it? You've written that yes. the pots that you make are often descriptive of a jangled urban life rather than serene rurality. Mm. So can we talk about the importance of the city to what it is that you do? I really only know London really well. And I think mm. London's a fantastic city. And I really relish living close together to other people. The sort of people that want to be in London very often. Things like going to really good cinema. I'm going out tonight to see the new Almodova film. Oh. Very good. At the BFI. Penelope Cruz, yeah. Yes, yeah. Theatre is is wonderful. I don't so often go to the theatre, but I do like it. I don't know, just more of a jangling of different cultural things, I think, is very stimulating. Mm. Mm. And all the museums we have and the galleries. And yeah, it's very rich culturally. Talking about the kind of the cultural life, Paul Greenhow, in his exhaustive book, Ceramic Art and Civilization says that you had more in common or had more common ground with painters such as Howard Hodgkin and Sean Scully. Is that something you agree with? Uh, no, I do like painting, but I had no particularly strong feeling for either of them. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I've seen their paintings, but I wouldn't make any connection with them. No, interesting. I mean, when you were studying, because obviously now with the digital world, we're used to seeing everything from everywhere. Mm. And you have, I don't know, Dzine explaining what's going on in the Far East and, and information just surrounds us. But when you were studying... Were you aware of what had been going on over on the West Coast of America, for example, with Peter Volkers? And did that feed into your practice? I certainly was aware of him. You know, my partner for for 10 years was an American. And so we went to California. And so I went to the San Francisco Museum. And I did get very excited, not especially by Volkers, but I could see that he was the beginning of something. But the people in the slightly subsequent generation. I was very struck by the kind of bravado and scale of everything Mm. in America, both on the West Coast and and the East Coast in museums. Yeah, it was very enriching. So just taking you back, Mm. we kind of went slightly off course. You're leaving the Royal College of Art. You're doing mainly tiles work, I believe. We're back in 1970 now. Yeah, yeah, okay. We are. We have taken you all the way back now. Yeah, 73, (laughs) 73, When you use the present tense, I was getting foxed. Okay, sorry. Taking you all the way back to 1973 when you're leaving the Royal College of Art and you were mainly making tiled work at that point. And you had this commission to work on the Zodiac swimming pool in Dorset. You're also drawing things like storks or animals or yes, wildlife? Yes, no, it's very, very pictorial. I don't know quite yeah. whether. I mean, it sprang out of what I showed at the final show. I got various commissions following from that. A couple of designers, I think they were, interior designers, saw the show and put me in line with various bits of work. The swimming pool was a disaster, really. Why was that? Well, I, it was all installed, and then the man went bankrupt. Ah. So I think I got 13 pence in the pound or possibly less or whatever yeah it was months of work you know (laughs) i didn't install the tiles no i don't know anything about the zodiac swimming pool it sounds kind of vaguely it sounds very 70s there are no images of it um no (laughs) i once sort of with a very brave photographer friend tried to photograph it and i think the man went bankrupt or something after he'd installed it and so the place was not occupied and we, we sort of crept in but it was a very windy, choppy day, so you couldn't take a photograph of the floor of a swimming pool with waves on top of it. But it was a public pool? or was, what, No, no, what, private Who private was going to use this? It was a private pool? Yes, oh, I yes. See. I see. Yes, sort of stockbroker territory. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. So then you went from drawing storks and things 
to yeah. becoming much more abstract. Yes. And can you pinpoint the moment of that change, I wonder? I think like most people leaving college, they do the commissions that they've, that they've been offered straight away, right. you know, and then if they <laughs> peter out, you think, oh, what shall I do now? And I realised that actually form was much more important to me than, than the painting part. But the fact that, that with hand building, you have the option to paint it as well. Um, it's like win-win, isn't it, really? The tiles stuff only lasted for uh, maybe three years or something. Right. You talk about hand building, and there will be people listening to this who aren't mm. ceramicists. Mm. Can we talk about your process? Your pieces are slab built. So what does that mean for people? It means I get a bag of clay and I cut off about two-thirds of it and I have lots of pieces of painter's canvas that I go up to this canvas supply place on a trading estate and buy cheap offcuts, ends of rolls and things. So you bash it out with a rolling pin on this piece of clay, which means you can move it around. And I always paint the surface with slip. I want a painted surface. So I roll it out and I paint it. And then when that's dried off a bit, I get another piece of canvas and I can flip it over and paint the other side. And that waits till it's what's called leather hard. Leather's a bit wrong. It's more like cheese, really. It's more like a good cheddar, really. Cheese hard. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> yes. But leather hard perhaps sounds a bit more like a workshop, doesn't it? I want to make both curves and flat surfaces. So you have to make the curves earlier and then mm. I tie little bandages around them. There are pictures of Phil Eglin with bandages tied around these massive, great big um, jars that he makes. And sometimes there is some some marks on the sheet of clay before I start as a kind of opener, you know, as a way of thinking something to react to rather than just being a plain colour. Right. So it's a very unpremeditated, I'm not designing it at all. I, I'm just going step by step. I was going to ask, so you don't, draw a piece before you no, make it no it's no. just purely with the material and you get a sense mm. of what you're going to do when you when you yeah. start manipulating it i mean i'll have i'll have an idea of a rough idea i mean there've been lots of times when i wanted to join two rather different chambers together one is quite curvy and one is quite angular or something like that and sometimes you just want to mm. make a piece with leftovers you know you see what's what's what you haven't used yet and you just build them together and see what happens uh, but the way you painted on the surface has changed over the years right Yes, it has, yeah. Can we talk about how it's changed and why? I think I'm less sure of how it's changed, really. I used to roll in texture and things a bit more, I think, back in the beginning, and, and that would the slip would sort of sit deeper in that. So you might get a deep blue if it was a blue slip. Where it's thicker, it's darker, you know, that kind of thing. Yes, I, I think I'm, I'm not... I think most of the painting now, although the sheet of clay is painted first and there's probably a mark or two on it, most of it is well, after it's been put together, really. I mean, that you're resolving something. Making a few marks on it gets the story started, in a way, or the conversation started. And then you need to resolve it once it's a shape. So it's just setting a little problem to solve, in a way, or a question to answer, rather than things just being blank, you know. Yeah. So then when you have the shape, you're now mm. sploshing slip over it, which you wouldn't have necessarily done before, right? No, I think I always have. Oh, you always have? Yeah, yeah, because it's a way of getting colour in. Yeah. I haven't used a large amount. I, for many, many years, I only used uh, a glaze, which was slightly matte and transparent. And I now use colour glaze in brush strokes or squirts or tra you know, trails or whatever, or a bit, but not much. And this fascination with pots, mm. containment is the word that seems to crop mm. up a lot when, mm. you're, when you're talking about. What, what is the fascination with containment for you? I think it's something that I feel, you know, it's a sort of bodily thing of comparing an inside with an outside, which is what is true of 
the human body and so many structures. Buildings have interiors and exteriors. It's something that spreads right across, I think, really. So the language is not just about pottery, you know. But it's not about pottery's history. It's somehow just opening it up wider to think about architecture or other materials or whatever. Yeah, the sense of volume. Yes, the sense of volume, yeah. Which yeah. is you know, very architectural in that sense, I think. There are a lot of jugs, Alison, in what you do. Well, jugs were a thing at the beginning, yes. They were my sort of vehicle for a while. Yeah, I, I hardly ever, hardly ever make anything that gets called a jug now. I think I sort of grew through it. <laughs> How does that happen? Do you decide one day, I'm just done with jugs, I'm bored of jugs? or You just find that you haven't felt like doing that, yes, putting a spout mm. on something or whatever, yeah. Mm. So it's purely intuitive. Yeah, yeah. And the one thing we haven't talked about through all this is your teaching, which I guess is kind of in the family blood. Yes, I have stopped now. I stopped when I turned 70 here. Yeah, which is what, 2018 or something, I think. Uh, yes. Mm. Is looking after generations of ceramicists coming through the Royal College in particular, did that feed into your practice? It's been a thrill. I mean, I've met so many interesting people that I've taught and taught with, you know, colleagues and so on. Mm. It's a community, you know, it's a network that has been a big part of my life, my social life and my thinking life. Not just ceramics, but, you know, going through things to do with, I was on the Craft Council for a while and so on, and I've written for the magazine, and especially when you were an editor. It is a sort of world which I'm happy to be in. And how do you think that world, the ceramics world in particular, has changed since maybe you left the Royal College? What are students that you're seeing until fairly recently? What are the mm. students that you've been teaching? Have their thoughts changed? Their attitudes to clay changed in that time? I think there's now so many more technical possibilities that people are exploring that, that I, I want it to be very um, simple. And then there are people using all, all kinds of things, which I, I don't think I would find them useful, but they do, you know. Mm sometimes digital modelling and things like that. So, no, I can be fascinated by new work. Fascinated but not envious, as it were, <laughs> you know, I think, yeah. Interesting. And you had this major retrospective, 2016, at the V&A. That must be curious, to see a life's work in, in one place. Did it feel like a time to take stock, a moment to rethink your practice? It did, yes. And, and one of the annoying things is I thought I would write something at that moment and, and even if I did it myself to, to produce an, an essay or a catalogue or something because they weren't doing a catalogue and I didn't and the, the time went by as it were but no it was it was amazing I mean because it was on for a year I went back quite a few times with different people you know with my uh, relatives and and friends and people who weren't always in England and so yeah I got to see it quite often and it no it was it was a real treat actually to have them all sat there for so long you know there were very crowded cases were like catalogues in a way or it was all arranged on how things looked and not to do with data or anything mm. there were three sections that were in cases in the middle that were more specifically themed i think and then there was a low outdoor open air plinth where, where there was some new work i think 10 new pieces or something and that was the first time i put anything on the wall i have been making plates to hang on the wall since then yes yeah so that was just a bit of a change in your practice mm. in that case yeah yeah and was that was that kind of um, brought about by the show? Was that inspired by the show? I think when the idea of the show came up, I think the idea was coming into my mind because there actually was one that I'd made earlier, which I'd given to my daughter and then I borrowed it back for the show. And I thought it needed a new context of new ones, you know. So I made, I think it was five or maybe it was only three actually. Anyway, there were some things on the wall and I've carried on with that since because actually to have something that's going to be physically holdable container and something that you're more inclined just to look at it's a very nice difference i think 
but it also takes your practice almost full circle, doesn't it? From yes, yeah, doing flat pieces at the Royal College to to where you are now. That's true. I hadn't thought of it like that. Yeah, yeah, and they can be plates. You know, people do put things in them, or they can be hung. I think the fact that it's a dual purpose is a nice thing. Our time, Alison, mm. is essentially up. Right. But the final question that I one is always has to ask in these interviews is your plans for the future. Now you have the book. We've talked about the book, <laughs> but <Yes>. w- w- <laughs> which is coming out sometime this year. But what else have you got on the slab? I wonder. I'm finding I'm making smaller amounts of work, so I really don't imagine another massive great show. I don't think, unless it's a lot drawn from the past. But I've probably had enough massive shows. I, I, I just want to go on making new work and surprise myself. Mm, that's a nice way to leave it. <laughs> Alison, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Grant. My thanks go to Alison. I'd also like to say a big thank you to this episode's sponsor, Mac Contemporary Ceramics. And please remember that it's next auction, East Meets West, Selections from the John P. Driscoll Collection will take place on the 10th of March 2022 and is on view on Friday the 18th of February at maclondon.com. More details can be found on the Mac website. As ever, there are images from the interviews on my Instagram page, Grant on Design, and you can find all the podcasts that I've done, sign up to my newsletter and lots of other stuff at grantondesign.com. Finally, and this is really important, if you've enjoyed listening and want to see this podcast flourish, then please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this from. And it would make me incredibly happy if you went to my Patreon page and made a pledge at patreon.com forward slash material matters. For as little as £2.50 a month, you can receive exclusive posts, blogs and thoughts from yours truly, as well as getting access to each episode before it's published to the wider world. Material Matters is a completely independent concern, and any help you can offer would be hugely appreciated. Ultimately, you'll be helping to take the message of the importance of materials, skill, craft and design to a whole new audience. Next up, I talk to Peter Lord, co-founder of Ardman Animations, and the man who created Morph about his relationship with plasticine. I'll see you next week. Thanks very much for listening. <laughs>